I may shock you by this opening statement. Did you know that relationships within the church can be messy? Relationships within the church can be messy. Can you believe that throughout the years as... Uh, well, first of all, can you believe that I got up here this morning and my chair was gone? I had to get it back out. But as we use this chair as a, a metaphor, as we go through James and the practical nature of James and how James speaks to us in a really practical way, one of the things that I'm sure you can imagine is that many times in my office, people are coming in within the body within communion, within fellowships, and they're going through difficult times relationally. Many years ago, 15 years ago or so, I was uh, working actually in another state at another place, and uh, there was a church that would refer folks to me. And believe it or not, uh, I saw there was a small group, and it was made of married couples, and I saw every single couple in that small group because they were having friction together. Six couples. At family camp last week, Damon, as we all got together, one of the scriptures that Damon had us work through as groups was in Acts where it told us that we have all things in common as believers. Certainly we know that to, to be a believer, it means that we have we have put our trust and our hope in the love of Christ and we know that Christ has poured his love into our lives and the expectation is that his love be poured out of us to one another. So what in the world could go wrong? We're called to live in his glory, to love him supremely and to love one another, but constantly over and over we find ourselves as we live together, as we live in community, as we're doing life together, we constantly find ourselves in these situations where there's conflict, where it's difficult. One man, many, many years ago, not here, uh, I had many people come and sit in my chair about this man. He finally, he came in and sat in my chair and he was just causing controversy all over the church he was in. He had read a book that had talked about the harsher side of Jesus. The book was really emphasizing the, the, the parts of Jesus where he was really kind of going after the Pharisees or where he made the, the, the whip, you know, and was going after, the, going after the people in the temple. And so this man came in and said, hey, this is what I resonate with with Jesus. In fact, he told me he had taken a spiritual inventory test, if you know what that is. And that he came out as a prophet. And so therefore, because of his temperament, the way that he was being like Jesus was he was being the truth teller. He was being the guy that had the whips and was going to whip everybody into shape in our church. Believe you me, that caused a little bit of controversy. Can you believe that a couple can come in for counseling? Both claiming scripture and where they're right on scripture and yet they can be in disagreement with one another. Could you believe that a couple can even come in with the same text, Ephesians 5, and they're arguing with one another that one is not respecting the other and the other one's not loving the other. And they're both exegeting this text to one another. 
relationships can be difficult. James is going to give us some help today. (laughs) This book is very, very practical, and James is going to give us some help. And one of the things that I want to dive into just for a moment this morning, there are two things that we need to know, and we'll probably come to this over and over again in this series, But one of the things that we need to know that makes relationships within the church, relationships with one another so difficult, is that there are these two things that kind of combine in us as believers. And and one is this, the world, the world is anti-God and anti-scripture. And the world creeps into the church and feeds us lies and disorients us. I mean, when we look at the message, you could be watching football yesterday and watch commercials. And when we see the message that the world is sending to us over and over and over again is this. Look out for yourself. You are number one. You are the center of your own world. The goal of life is for you to be happy. Versus what the Bible tells us, which is the radical otherness of our faith, that we are to be looking out for the, for the wants and the desires and the love of others, and that being our position. That reality, that reality can't work by itself in the life of a believer. The other thing that's at work, that we'll come back to a little later in this sermon, but the other thing that's at work is that we are not yet what we will be in the faith. We're saved by His grace through faith, and we're being sanctified, we're becoming more holy, but there still remains in us sin, and a pull towards sin. And so those two things combine together, and it makes it creates this impulse in us at times that pulls us away from community, that pulls us away from what we're supposed to be doing. Pulls us away from how God would want us to interact with one another. And so our text in the book of James is so vitally important. Because as I said a couple of weeks ago, it reorients us. It shakes us up. It puts us right side up. And this morning, it's going to happen. Now what I want you to see as we jump into our text is that James is talking to believers. In verse 19, there are two things here in verse 19. First is this, is As he's addressing them, he says, this you should know. So he's addressing some teaching that they had heard before, whether it was some Jewish uh, saying or whether he was quoting Proverbs, because what you'll hear, we we read all throughout Proverbs or Psalms or or, or something else. He's talking to believers. He's talking to to the Christian community here. And he says, this you should know. And then that's followed by my beloved brethren. My beloved brethren. And then also, the other way that we know that he's talking to the Christian community is is look down at verse 21. And there's a a theme here. And there's an assumption. In verse 21, towards the end, it says, In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. A non-believer does not have the word implanted in them. The reality is what it means to be a believer is that the word is implanted in us. And as believers, we desire this word. We desire to be fed. We desire to hear. We desire to be around it. 
This isn't the first time that we have had this theme of the word, and it won't be the last in this section. Look back up at verse 18. It says, we covered this a couple weeks ago, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by what? By the word of truth. And what we see is that the word, the word is what saves us, and the word is what sanctifies us. The word is what makes us holy. The word is what makes us and transforms us into who we are supposed to be. And so as he's talking to this community of believers, he is emphasizing that we are people of the word. It's vital in our lives. And it should be at work in you. In many ways, we should all be in this counseling chair in our lives. And our counselor is the Holy Spirit who is enacting the word in us, convicting Showing us truth. Rejoicing with us. Causing us to become more like our Savior. The word should be shaping and defining the Christian community. So much so. Get this. When the non-Christian world looks at us. If they hang around us very long. They should know what the word says because we're living it out. Isn't that something? When the world sees us, it knows what the word says because we're living it out. I'm just going to say this very quickly. In In our community, in our church, as we are together... The world should know 1 Corinthians 13, where it talks about love. Love is patient, love is kind, love is long-suffering. Because Paul, in the book of Corinthians, as he's talking to that rowdy bunch, and he's talking about the spiritual gifts, he tells us the greatest of these is love, and then he defines love. And so when the world hangs around us, they should see those qualities. Galatians 5, where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. When the world hangs around us, they should see the fruit of the Spirit coming out of us. Now, let's return to verse 21 for just a moment. Where it says, receive the word of truth, or receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Notice, it tells us how we are to receive that, and it's in humility. In submission that we place ourselves under it. That it is the authority. We know that we are flawed. We know that we need help. We're not standing over the word. Judging the word. We're standing under the word. Letting the word soak in on us. And change us. So the man who said that his spiritual gift was being a prophet. Or the couple who comes in and they're arguing the word, Ephesians 5, at each other. How would they sit? How would they hear the word of God spoken to them? And the question for us this morning, and I've kind of set you up just to let you know. How will you hear the word of God this morning? 
The text this morning that we're reading is easy. It is so easy to understand. But I want to say it is so hard to live out. The question is going to be, how will you receive the word this morning? And I think one of the reasons it's so hard is because it goes against our sinful, natural impulses. So you ready? Let's go. Let's jump in. You know this, my beloved brethren, but everyone. What's that word? Everyone. Everyone must be quick to hear. And I want to follow that up with no excuses. Now, if we just stop there, we miss a little bit of the context. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And so one of the things in getting this context is when he's talking about that we must be quick to hear, it's not just in our passing conversations, but even when the conversations get hard and it goes into conflict or it goes into disagreements, that the word is calling us to be quick to hear. The question for you this morning, are you quick to hear? Do you value what your brother or sister in the Lord has to say so much that you want to sit as they're talking and maybe even as they're saying something that rubs you the wrong way? Are you so conscious of who they are in Christ and that you want to do what this word says that you are a good listener? Do you value them enough to sit and hear what they have to say? Isn't it so hard when we get agitated, when we get keyed up, isn't it so hard to listen? It's almost like our ears just shut off. How often do you think, if you could be in my counseling office, whether it's two folks in the church or whether it's a married couple, how often do you think it is the case that the two people that are sitting here actually pretty much agree on everything they're arguing about. They're just not listening. They're just responding to one another. And one of the things that gets in the way is assumptions. That we create assumptions about people or about situations or about what we think somebody's going to say. We create these assumptions and those assumptions become more powerful than actually what is coming out of the person's mouth. And if you want to do a test this morning, I could have found quotes, but I didn't do that. But if I started this morning in quoting and I said, hey, listen, Joe Biden says, Donald Trump says, Nancy Pelosi says, Mitch McConnell says, your assumptions are going to take over and you may not even hear what the quote is. And we do this with one another. All the time. The reality is that assumptions and frustrations just mute our hearing. I, I can't. There have been numerous times. That I've had people come in to talk to me. And we've had conversations, and then it's gotten back around to me that, Lewis, you said blah, blah, blah. And I was very clear that I did not say blah, blah, blah. 
In fact, I went through painful lengths to repeat myself. Hey, I'm not saying blah, blah, blah. I'm saying da, da, da or whatever. <laughs> and it comes back to me that I said blah, blah, blah. The reason is, is because they came in assuming. Came in agitated. The ears were closed. One of the biggest, uh, one of the first things you learn when you go to school for counseling is a technique called active listening. And, oh, couples get so annoyed when I make them do this, but it's so good. And what is, is that, you know, couple, uh, the man says to his wife, hey, um, I really don't think that our uh, kids should play in dirt. And I say, wife, tell me what your husband said. He said that I'm a terrible mother. That's not what he said. We're going to repeat exactly what he said. Okay. He said he doesn't want our kids to play in dirt. Good. Now respond. Do you think I'm a bad mother? Man, what did she say? She said I'm a horrible father. No. Let's listen. Let's repeat. Because here's one of the crazy things that I want for you in our body and even in your homes is that if you're going to argue, I want you arguing about the right thing so that you can come to a resolution. But if we are slow, slow to hear... If assumptions and frustrations cloud what we're doing and thinking, we're going to be arguing about the wrong thing. And divisions and strife will continue to happen. Now let's move forward. Not, all, not only are we to be slow to hear, but our text tells us everyone be slow to speak. No excuses. And certainly there's an easy application that when we're listening to somebody, we just shouldn't blurt out. You know, one of Flannery's favorite jokes is knock, knock, who's there? Interrupting cow, interrupting cow, move, you know, before she can say who. But one of the things I want you to know is that there's more than just blurting out of your mouth. You can have a dialogue going on inside of your head where you are quick to speak inside your head and you are hearing nothing of what the person is saying because you are running a dialogue inside your own head. And it does make you go through these thoughts and it makes you completely off base when you rebuttal. But how many of us do that? That as soon as somebody starts talking, boom, we start formulizing an idea, formulizing an argument in our head. And if all that weren't enough, this is the kicker, right? That everyone, everyone, should be slow to anger. There's no excuses. Slow to anger. Now notice the next verse. Slow to anger for. That little word means it's. This is a connection. Be slow to anger. For the anger of man. Does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now, some of us, when we hear this phrase, righteousness of God, we're thinking about Paul and, and some of Paul's writings where Paul says our righteousness is Jesus Christ, that we are made righteous because of Christ's sacrifice and we take on his righteousness. Certainly that is the truth. James is not talking about that here. James is doing something a little bit different. James is saying he is pointing out the reality when he says righteousness of God, your anger does not achieve the righteousness of God, meaning your anger does not make you more like God. 
does not help you live up to the standard that God has for the Christian community. Your anger does the opposite. And some of you may be like, whoa, 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 Lewis, wait a minute. You should say James. Whoa, 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 James. Wait a minute. The book of Ephesians says, be angry and sin not. What's the deal? What about, we've all heard the phrase, righteous indignation? Is there a such thing? Sure there is. Let me tell you some things that we should be righteously, what's the word, wit? indignated about? I don't know, whatever it is. Righteously angry about. Indignant. Indignant, thank you. One of the things that we should be righteously angry about is whenever we see God's name profaned. One of the things I think is perfectly okay for us to, to be angry about is when we see people, pastors under the guise of Bible teachers and they are just profaning the name of God over and over and over and over again. I think it's very okay to be angry at the devil. You know, times I get really angry at Satan is, is times when I hear of, you know, that one of you has a cancer diagnosis or one of you is in incredible pain. Because of the effects of sin. In the world. Because of the devil and his reign, things aren't like they should be, and people go through things that are just difficult and we can be angry at Satan for that. Knowing one day. That it'll all be set free. I think it's okay for you to be angry at your own sin. I think that's biblical. Be righteously angry at your own sin. I don't like the reality that this is inside of me. And this creates this in me. That is perfectly okay. And it is okay to be angry at the reality. That those in our society who are the least vulnerable, we're going to in a couple weeks, we're going to talk about widows and orphans that they can be mistreated and taken advantage of. We can be angry about that. But what are the things that we are most angry about? Is it those things? How often do people come in and sit in the chair because they're both angry because God's name is being defamed? Not too often. Never in my world. No, when people come in, they're angry because somebody's disappointed them. Somebody has hurt their feelings. People are holding on to grudges. They're, maybe people are hurt and they're angry and they want to hurt somebody back. Maybe, maybe that there's this long-standing thing inside of us, you know, as, as fathers and mothers, we can create wounds in our kids. Maybe there's this long-standing wound that we haven't dealt with, and so every time that button gets pushed, we lash out in anger. I don't think any of this is righteous indignation. This is the kind of stuff that James is telling us, your anger... Your anger does not achieve the righteousness of God.
Maybe another objection this morning is that you may be saying, how in the world do we get control of that? It says slow to anger. Man, when I get anger, it just triggers me. That's the truth. Part of the Christian life, part of the transformation that happens is the word gets put in us. And we'll talk about this more in just a second. But part of that transformation is for us to be able to gain control so that we're not living life in this way of boom, upset, boom, upset, boom, upset, boom, upset. That we begin to learn what it means to have control. Because we're commanded. Be slow to anger. So, let's broaden it back out. How in the world can we become quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger when everything inside of us naturally wants to do the opposite? And so the question this morning that I have to ask before we jump into this is are you willing to sit in this chair and listen? Are you willing? I hope you are. Now, notice... Again, this flow, we get these verses, 19 and 20, and then we get in verse 21, this therefore, connecting it to the, to the verses above. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. James does something here that we're used to seeing, if you've read very much of Paul's letters in the Bible, of Paul will often say, put off this and put on this. And James is doing something similar. Do you want to be the kind of person who obeys the word? Well, here's what you have to do. You have to put aside all filthiness. This idea of being filthy, of having soiled garments, except it's deeper than that. The defilement is in our soul. And notice, put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Believers, believers, one of the things that's going on inside of you is that what still remains, God is at work. He is making you more like his son. But we have to be aware of the reality that there still remains in us unholiness and wickedness and a pull towards sin. Are you able to sit and look at the plank in your own eye? A man was sent to me one time for counseling because he was angry. And he came in and told me he was not angry. And after some time together, he realized he was very angry. And his solution to it was that everybody else around him be nicer to him so that he, they wouldn't have to experience his anger outburst. He was unable to look and to see what was going on inside of him and what the word tells us. What the word tells you this morning is that if you are having troubles listening, speaking and becoming angry, look inside the more that we look out here and we look at others as the source of that 
we're going to stay stuck in this pattern and we're never going to be able to obey this work. We've got to be able to look inside of us. Just like two weeks ago when it, we were talking about lust and when lust gives birth, it gives birth to sin. That We've got to quit looking out there in the Bible. James is telling us over and over, look in you, look in you, look in you. One of the things that I've been constantly thinking about as I've been looking at James is in Galatians chapter 5 as it talks about uh, the works of the flesh and and walking in the Spirit. And in fact, just just listen to this. Don't turn there. Just listen to this. Paul is saying here, but I say walk by the Spirit and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. Notice the fight that's going on inside of us and the Spirit against the flesh. These things are in opposition to one another. And notice what it says in verse 19. I want you to hear the deeds of the flesh. And I think we miss a bulk of what Paul is talking about because we hear the beginning and end and say, oh, I'm good here. And we miss the middle. For the flesh sets its... Verse 19. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Verse 21. Envying, drunkenness, carousing. Okay? Notice verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, and then hear this. Let this land on you. These are the deeds of the flesh. Enmities. Strife. Jealousy. Outbursts of anger. Disputes. Dissensions. And factions. We will do well to sit And let the word of God counsel us that when these things are present, envy, strife, dissensions, outbursts of anger, when these things are present, this is not the spirit working in us. This is the flesh inside of us. Will you hear that this morning? So we put off these things, we put off these things, and the goal is to be in the process to make us more like him. And I think it's fascinating that it says the anger of God does not achieve, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, that this text is calling us to be more like God. And I want to ask you, what is God like? In Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. The point of the psalm is that God is assaulted by us and our sin every day. And then as we walk through the psalms, many, many places, and I'm just going to point out one in Psalm 86, verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and in truth. All over the Old Testament, we have this saying that God is merciful. He is slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness. And so, brothers and sisters, when we. When we are not slow to anger. What are we saying with our life? 
When we claim our right to be angry, what are we saying about God? That we're more righteous than He is. That we're more holy than He is because you offended me. Brothers and sisters, God is calling us to be like Him. And the solution to this is our posture, right? Receive the word that is implanted within you in humility. It's our posture of wanting to receive the word. And I'm going to use a silly sports analogy here. Uh, Andrew and I are coaching soccer together. And in soccer, if, if somebody's going to kick you the ball, and you, it, you know, this comes from England, you know, we get all the British, you know, sayings, but you're, you know, it's, you're receiving the ball, right? How many of us think we receive the ball like this? Or laying down. I'm not going to lay down and get back up. I'm getting too old. No, if you're teaching a child how to, how to receive a ball, you teach them to be ready, to look, to gaze, to be ready to receive the ball. It's the same way with us as Christians. We have to be ready to receive the word. And one of the things this means is that you have to be in it. And when you are in it, you have to be in it in a certain way. You have to be in it in the posture of being in the chair and desiring for the word to have its work, for the spirit to be our counselor, that the spirit takes that word and we're sitting under it. And when we hear something that challenges us or tells us to do this or not do that, that we are in that position where we receive that word. We're not standing over it. It's one of the reasons that we go verse by verse through the Bible at this church is because it's not the, it's not anything that I say or any idea that I have, but it's the word of God that we are to receive. It's the word of God that's to change us. And finally, I think these verses clearly point to us that the other way to overcome and to do as the scripture has commanded is that we've got to live life in this chair. And so many times I think that we sit in this chair and we ask God, God, let, uh, let me change chairs with you. I think I can do that a little bit better. Or, or God, I hear you say that, but hey, listen, why don't you sit down and let me tell you what it's really, let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you why I don't listen to Steve anymore. Hmm. Are you willing to submit to God Submit to the word so that we can live together as people who are going to have disagreements because none of us are who we will be. People who are going to have arguments. Will you be a people who humbly receive the word of God and you let it change you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this word. I thank you for this word for me. God, you know the struggles that I have with this. And God, I pray. This book, James, tells us that judgment is harsher for teachers. And I get it. Help us. Help us be a people that quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. In your name we pray. Amen.